Hi, welcome to the season finale of A Deep Tea Conversation. I've been looking forward to this episode for a really long time now. Our guest today is my best friend and the best mentor I've had professionally and personally. Our guest today is Malcolm Wilde. Malcolm is a self-taught techie with a passion for delivering positive business impact. He's worked for 30 years now, which is longer than I've been alive. He's worked in 21 different countries for corporates, startups, at all levels of management, from being a developer to support functions, from infrastructure to project and product management, uh, to being a director, an MD, a CTO, a CIO, a CEO, and more recently, a chief strategy officer for a multinational. Malcolm has lived in five different countries, the UK, the US, Hong Kong, China, Malaysia, and now lives in Singapore, where we met three and a half years ago. Malcolm is one of the smartest, the most articulate and caring person in the corporate world that I have met. He has given me incredible advice for my career and bringing him here today is to make sure that all of you, my listeners, get that wisdom and can use that in your career and in your personal life. We're going to talk about uh, three things today, um, which is going to be entrepreneurship, mentorship, and recovery. So without further ado, um, you know, I want to welcome Malcolm. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm super excited for this episode and I'm, I'm really glad that you're, you're doing this. So thank you for that. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to coming here for uh, quite some time. I was um, around when you did your very first podcast um, and uh, yeah, I'm very flattered to be asked uh, to take part in it. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. So before we, we progress, we're having tea. So, uh, you know, it's interesting because Malcolm and I are doing this recording remotely. So we're not present at the same location. So we're having two different cups of tea. I'm having marigold tea. Malcolm, what are you having? Well, actually, I'm in Vietnam today. Uh, so I'm actually having some Vietnamese oolong for a change, which isn't my normal tipple, but it's just what I've got locally. So, hey, it'll do. Oh, that's fantastic. Bring some back for me, yeah? Okay, we'll do. <laughs> okay, fabulous. Right, so I want to get started with how you've ended up here. But Malcolm, I know you really, really well, okay? So I'm going to turn this question around to say, Malcolm, I know you didn't have a formal education and you grew in your career super fast. You were in a C-level executive position at 29 and living up the life. Um, so I, I'm, and I know that when you were 19, you were living out of a car basically in, in the United States. So I, I want to, I want you to tell us, you know, how you ended up being so successful so soon for not having had a, a, a formal education. And I think this ties into our first theme about entrepreneurship. So over to you on this one. 
Well, what a place to start. Well, those two uh, uh, points you brought out, not, not necessarily a high and low point at all, but just interesting inflection points on the journey. Um, yeah, it's a bit intimidating with your other guests in terms of listening to some of their education and their background, and uh, um, they're all equally accomplished professionals themselves. Um, my background wasn't necessarily the traditional um, the traditional one. I've always been a little bit of the wild card by name and by nature. Um, I, I didn't have a formal education in technology technology, which is where I've made my uh, uh, livelihood from for uh, most of the last sort of 20 plus years. Um, uh, and I wasn't very academic at school, I have to be honest. I was uh, uh, probably on a good day pushing an average. I think that still holds true, Mel. <laughs> <laughs> you still write in caps lock. You still occasionally, write in write. occasionally. I'm not necessarily the conventional uh, guy, but uh, I was much more a practical guy than um, uh, an academic. I, I struggled with reading at, at, at school and uh, failed my maths at school as well. So in terms of I really wasn't an Oxford PhD graduate and that was never going to be my thing um but i was lucky enough to find certain things that i did enjoy and i was brought up to be very independent and uh sort of a bit of a go-getter but i came from pretty humble backgrounds uh, we didn't really have money growing up so much we never went hungry so in the grand scheme of things it, it wasn't so bad but you kind of had to fend for yourself and make your own way um so you kind of learned to hustle as best you could from an early age and were brought up to being independent and um i found things that i did enjoy doing um, everything from anything practical and hands-on, I can do. And I've taught myself to do most of the things that um, uh, people look at me for uh, from a professional standpoint. I, I was the one at three o'clock in the morning reading the books as best I could, learning how to program self-taught with that and um, I love that uh, I love that you know you 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 taught yourself to code and Go on, you know, I'm sorry, but because that's just so amazing. Well, actually, it wasn't too difficult because when I kind of got into it, it wasn't, I have to be honest, it wasn't as complicated then as it was now. It was all new. So, yes, it was difficult to get research materials and things like that. But my first computer, I was very lucky. My parents spent what was, relatively speaking, quite a lot of money for us. Um, they bought me an Acorn Electron computer when I was probably about 11 or 12. Um, and it was yeah. uh, it was something that allowed me to learn to code. And the benefit of getting that particular one was it was the same coding language that was being adopted by schools. And the school I was, what I was in only had one computer. So for me to have one at home, that was a huge benefit. And my uh, one of my uncles was into computer programming for his job. So, um, I mean, this is going back quite a long time now. Um, so it wasn't necessarily as common as it, as it was, but it taught me to do the basics. Um, that computer was an interesting one in terms of, uh, you'll like this because you're, you're a big fan of uh, women in technology, I know, through uh, your professional and personal interests. It was actually developed from the hardware and software uh, point of view by a lady. I think her name was Sophie Wilson, and she went on to be um, one of the top 15 most uh, influential women in in. Uh, technology certainly in the UK wow, and beyond so and I still have that computer today so it was obviously a pretty good investment uh, it's kicking around somewhere in one of my one of my homes somewhere in the loft probably um but that got me into computing and it was very logical so I understood from my my aptitude towards probably more of the engineering side of things and creative I guess I understood logic so I could get how to uh, write it and I, I developed a passion it was something I was good at okay I wasn't great at school in French and singing and music music and all the things that you're actually quite good at, they weren't my <laughs> strengths. It, it didn't mean I didn't enjoy them, but I 
I, yeah. I want to be good. I'm very much, I want to be a winner. So I, I just try and find the things I'm good at. And I just picked it up and carried on with that. And um, I was very lucky in in um, uh, my very early stages of career, whilst I, I, I wasn't able to go to university, we unfortunately, we, we weren't particularly well off. So we didn't have the money to, to go to university. So I just went straight into work at sort of 16. And then had to go back to college to do my maths again, and, and then kind of fell out of there with an A level or two. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, new information. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> something new every day with me. So yeah, so I, 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 I was working full time, but obviously, there were pretty mundane blue collar jobs on minimum wage and awful hours and stuff like that. But you kind of do what you got to do. Um, and then I was, uh, I, I got into proper computing again uh, through a sales job where I was selling uh, computers. Got ended up just selling them in a high street retail store, and then got interested in them again. And uh, this was probably about the um, early mid about mid nineties. By the time I'd actually piqued my my interest about about ninety five, I decided I was going to start my own business in uh, oh, what, wow. what was becoming the internet, and I w- wanted to do e commerce because I was in retail, and I was working round the clock, uh, and I was working six, seven days a week on minimum wage trying to make a commission. And then I suddenly realized, hang on, this internet thing's quite clever because it's on all the time. And surely if I wanted to sell a product and I could just put it on all the time, I don't have to be there selling it. So I'd worked out very quickly that the internet had an opportunity. So I decided to try and teach myself the internet languages that were coming out. So HTML had just come out at that time. Um, and there was a whole bunch of uh, sort of server-side programming languages. Any any old people out there that know uh, sort of Perl and and CGI scripts and things like that um, uh, allowed allowed me to uh, develop the uh, coding that was required to uh, build out some businesses. So I really got into um, uh, into that. So you started your first business. When was that? Uh, good question. I think it was about 96, 97. I actually set up formally as my first company. And um, I was in my um, mid, mid-20s, really, there or thereabouts. You can go on LinkedIn and have a look at my dates there. <laughs> Many of these things are so long ago, it's fading. Um, but yeah, I, I set up my first business. And frankly, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and if I'd known about all the things that you've got to do with taxation, legislation, employment law, and all these sort of things, I'd been too scared off to have done it. But I went out and set one up. I had nothing to lose. Um, I love that. Uh, my first business I set up just buying the equipment and things like that. In today's money, it would be what probably about four thousand sing dollars, something like that. Maybe even a bit less than that. So it was just money I saved up from my day job. So I was still working full time, and then I'd work from about nine p.m. till three a.m. Uh, teaching myself how to code and doing some uh, work for customers. And the tipping point for me was really when I got my first check for my first uh, customer from my when I had just started my my business. I looked at the check and realized that I really enjoyed doing that work. And I'd made four times my salary for a fraction of the work. And I was just like, right, okay, I'm changing careers. And then from that point on, it was almost uh, didn't need to look back. Um, I ended up sort of snowballing from there. One good thing led to another. So I'd kind of People say, well, that's really entrepreneurial, but I'd, I'd analyzed the risk to such a point that actually I was only risking things that I was happy to. So actually the risk wasn't really too much. But to someone looking at it from outside, it was potentially quite scary to go and set up your own company and switch careers. But I had nothing to lose, really. Um, 
no one yeah. was hiring me as well because I don't. What were you doing when you were setting up this company? What was your full time job then? I was a sales guy. I was selling fridges and TVs and washing machines and desktop computers. So just in a high street retailer. So like in Singapore, it would be like Best Denki. I love this because I think that's where every time I've I've spoken to you about, you know, you being extraordinary at sales and technology, which which is basically the kind of talent you want to have in the digital industry. You've always pointed it pointed me back to the fact that you know you picked it up from selling washing machines. You know, um, I love selling. I love selling. My favorite, my favorite uh, um, type of customer was someone who said, "There's nothing you can do to make me buy it today." And they'd always walk out as my best friend, having spent the most amount of money. <laughs> so it was it was that passion for helping people, genuinely trying to help people. Uh, I mean, my commission was so low, it didn't make a material difference to me necessarily. But helping people get what they really want and having real good product knowledge, having a passion for the thing you were selling, whether, whether that's in a digital agency selling a service, whether it's building software products to sell, or whether it's selling a washing machine. The skills about understanding a customer's needs, being able to get the sort of benefits of the product or service out and across and articulate it in a way and helping them find the right price point. Those skills, whether you're a Saturday lad in a, um, a retail store, whether you're um, head of business development for an enterprise, some of those skills are comparable. And what I've just done over time is just build on each one of those. So regardless of how good or bad the job was I was doing at the time, I made it my ambition to learn something and take take something from that on a professional and personal level and roll that into the next thing. And I think that's what's really admirable about you, Malcolm. I think you've got really good work ethic that, you know, you've, you've worked for so long now, but, you know, when I first met you at Possible, I mean, you were still coming into the office with so much passion, so much enthusiasm to help people. And, you know, you've taught me everything I need to know about business. So that's, that's phenomenal. But hang on. So you told me that you started this business because, because one John mentored you, you know, was that right? Like, something pushed you to to open up this first business of yours well actually no you're 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 jumping a little bit but i'll forgive you for that (laughs) so the way that the story broadly goes is i happened to meet someone that um was my i would say was my first business mentor i've not been in touch with john for a very long time and i don't really do shout outs to people that the important ones along the way uh uh know who they are but uh yeah uh, i'm probably too english to uh to call people out but i met a guy called john who who was about the same age I am now. And he just sold his business and was looking at the internet. And I just started my business. And um, and what we added together as a team, and this is the the important thing about uh, sort of entrepreneurship, is understanding uh, the value of what tools, talent, and technology can bring together to form something um, of greater value. So John bought uh, financial acumen. He'd run businesses. He'd made them successful. What I bought was an understanding of the technology and a passion for selling uh, as well. So when we teamed up, we then created a new business. So that became my second company under his uh, guidance. And that just skyrocketed. That business is still going today. And um, uh, I think it was our third employee, about third employee, uh, is still running that company now as CEO. So I've built things. I don't have any relationship with them, but wow. <laughs> yeah, it's still going. Yeah. 
and, and we set it up in our hometown and they're, they're uh, running the business today and uh, not far away from where it very first started. So I built things that have had quite a bit of a legacy. But um, I went on to do other things beyond that. So I was very lucky to to go down to London and ended up working in a an incredible business, a very large agency there. And that's where I got my first sort of big breaks, I guess, in terms of um, corporate land. So I went from a standing yeah. star to sort of project manager into um, a C-level position within Oh, I think 900 days. But I set a five-year goal. I wanted to go from building a business myself where I was employee number one. So if you are if you start your own business, the only person you don't have to interview is yourself. And you can get quite egoistic about that because you believe that, oh, I'm fantastic. Look at what I've built. And yeah, okay, you've, you've, you're getting a, a wage out of it now and maybe some equity in something. And okay, that's not too bad. But I wanted to be my ego my drive was to prove myself at that age it was to uh, be a c-level in a recognized international that would prove that i'd really done it not that i just started a business and got out of a shop floor and into a um a sort of techie business that i built up that's a that's a tick in the box for m many people in their life anyway but i thought well can i do this at a corporate level and the timing for a whole variety of reasons made sense for me to go and do that job so i moved down to london um, uh, got up and running with this uh, business, loved it, met some really super smart people that I'm still connected to today. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed the job. And I, I didn't do it for the money. This is something that's been pretty consistent through my career. And certainly if, if I look at um, uh, the entrepreneurship side of things, when I've gone from going from uh, my own startups or whatever and into corporate land i've only taken the jobs that i've been really passionate about wanting to do and had the view that the money will follow after and that's always been the case so in many but, cases but have, you, but have you negotiated for it because you've taught me that like you've taught me to recognize my value in my uh you know career and so uh, like i'm curious about it i know you've followed your passion and it's so evident but Everywhere you went, did you have to negotiate or, you know, well, to a certain degree, I've been very lucky that at both ends of the spectrum, I, I've worked for people for free and I've signed multi-million dollar employment contracts with equity and stuff like that. That looks like a lottery win. So I've been at both ends of the spectrum, um, but the money's not really been the motivating factor in terms of um, uh, me deciding what I want to do. When you've got bills to pay, it's important there's a baseline there for sure. But what I wanted to do was make sure that the job was going to be interesting. So you never took a job for, I never took a job for what I was going to be doing. I took it for where it would lead me to next. So the negotiation was also around, where is it going to lead me? I never really minded if I just, if I could keep my head above water, if that was the case, and just on a basic salary, even if I was the lowest paid guy in the office, I mean, hey, I come from startup land and working in factories. I was used to living on minimum wage. It wasn't a problem. Um, but if, if that's what I had to do to get a jump somewhere else, and that was the opportunity, hell, I'd go for it. Um, I think in terms of when you are younger, if you're in your 20s, you're establishing yourself. So I think there's a degree of risk. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to go sleep on someone's sofa. Don't be afraid to follow, borrow some cash if you need to. But use that time to, to find what your angle is and step up. People love, um, employers love... Um, uh, uh, colleagues and uh, and employees that will step up and take responsibility. Yes, boss, I want to do this. Let me have a go. Help me if I get stuck. The um, the I can count 
on on one hand, the amount of times that might happen in over a couple of years where someone comes up to you and asks, as an employer, you're desperate for help. You've always got so much work on. And if you had someone who's keen to say, how do I take some more responsibility? Let me do this for you. Let me learn. I'll shout if, I, <laughs> if I'm struggling, but let me help. And that's what I did. I always took on more than they asked me to do. So my value was uh, far beyond the pay. And then as I was doing that, especially, and here's a little secret bit, if it's not really your day job and you're not that great at it, then their expectation's pretty low. Well, if he helps out and he's all right, then great. But if you actually exceed their expectation, suddenly they go, this guy's ready for a promotion. They're great. So they shuffle you along and then the money comes. They'll put you in that position. And I managed to, I think over a 10-year period, I think I doubled my salary every year for 10 years. I know. I love that story. <laughs> By stepping up. I mean, I started at a pretty low base in fairness. So, but yeah, it was, um, it was just a way of hustling. So all, all the way through my twenties, I just hustled, hustled, hustled. And what was interesting, um, they always say making your first million is the hardest. It's absolutely true. That, that first 10 years was probably the hardest year 11. I was plain sailing from there. Um, so that in terms of the entrepreneurship side of things, looking back, it was a case of uh, not really being afraid to to take a bit of a risk, but do the analysis. Don't be reckless about it, especially if you've got a young family or things like that or other obligations. Um, but be a bit fearless. In, in that time, you can make a few mistakes and uh, jump around, but do it for the right reasons. Um, don't just follow the money. Don't just go in for the nine to five. Do something that you're really passionate about. And I've been very lucky. There, there was there were aspects of every job that I kind of really don't want to be doing some bits of, but you kind of do it through gritted teeth on some days. But if 80% of your role is something that you want to be um, involved in, etc., then great. And work for people that you enjoy working with. I mean, I know it's difficult yeah. if you don't have all the autonomy, but um, check out the companies before you go in and see them. I used to do the usual thing when I went and interviewed for jobs. I go and check out the toilets, check out the car park. The things that they don't want you to see, if those are well organized and tidy, they're probably pretty all right. Um, but I, do, I, I developed a bit of a no assholes policy. I didn't employ them and I didn't work with them. And it took me a good 10 years to realize that was the case. Um, my life is too short, especially now. Now, as you keep reminding me, more summers behind me than in front, which is very delicately put, I think. But, so uh, <laughs> but um, it, it is a case of uh, choose wisely uh, and yeah. be a little bit fearless. Um, yeah. And that was that was kind of the first sort of, uh, uh, sort of 10 years of careers. It, it, I would say it was more hard graft. And then the 30s into uh, 40s, it was much more at the sort of exec level. And I had a few bumps in that process, went up and started businesses in places like Hong Kong. Yeah. And I think I want to touch upon that mm, because, okay, sure. because I know you really well. And so I know that, you know, you're so energetic and you're so passionate and like you've mentioned, you've taught me to find purpose in my work and to um, to not chase the money, but, you know, uh, taught me that the money will follow and, and things like that. But I, I know that because of how passionate you are and how passionate you can be, um, you've worked yourself to burnout multiple times, you know, and so... So I want to get us started on on recovery, Malcolm, and I want to I want to start the recovery journey from, you know, from how you've gone from 
the first 10 years to actually pacing yourself, which to be honest, you know, we both know you're still not very good at. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about, about your journey to recovery. Well, the recovery thing sounds like a little bit uh, on the negative side of things, I guess. Um, I, I'm probably, I think I'm probably your oldest uh, uh, guest so far. Um, and, and I'm the other side of quite a few life, uh, 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 how best to put it, some challenging life experiences. I um, Fortunately, I, I had a divorce uh, and... Um, a uh, bunch of failed businesses behind me. So as much as there's successes in there, I, and there've been uh, highs and lows. Life is a roller coaster. You can't get away from it. And regardless of what you do, you can be as morally adjusted as you want, and stuff comes and hits you sideways. You do get through it. You do get through it. The days uh, can seem difficult. The nights can seem worse. And I don't think I've met a single person at any level of business or personal life that isn't broken at some point or another in their psychology. Um, and I've got better at recognizing that through through pushing myself way, way, way too hard and uh, not just breaking myself, but also breaking people that have been close to me as well in the process. And some of that is a slightly selfish behavior. And I'm glad to say I'm a little bit better at doing these things and sort of recognize my own um, uh, faults. But you can get through all these dark times. It takes... I think in terms of the first thing is taking responsibility. The people that I don't see recovering, the people that are constantly blaming somebody else for their misfortune. It might be true, but it is your responsibility to pick the bits of your life up and then suck it up, forgive, forget, are very, very hard to do and just get on with things. And the quicker you can stabilize some aspects of it, um, if you've, I, I've been reasonably lucky that I've had a pretty consistent career that I've had huge gaps of whether it be unemployment or uh, running businesses that haven't been making enough money to pay me and those sort of things. So those are very, very worrying times. Um, but I might have had friends and family to lean on during those periods. If you find that your both your work life is screwing up and you may be having personal problems in your private life as well, that's an extremely scary uh, point because it feels like you're falling. There's no safety net in life. We kid ourselves with security and we have these things around and a few dollars in the bank as a backup and these sort of things. But when it goes seriously wrong, um, it can go very, very badly wrong, incredibly fast. All the things that you have, all the nice houses, the big cars, the money in the bank, the Gucci girlfriends or boyfriends um, can disappear overnight. And then you're left going, how the hell did that happen? So 10 years of building these things up can go literally in less than a year. And then you're left there going, Christ, how do I get back from this? Yeah. It takes, it takes, a, lot of, um, it takes a lot of courage to look at yourself and then go, that was my fault or at least some of it was anyway. And then once you recognize that, then you can go, right, okay, how do I go and sort this out? You have to ditch your ego. You've got to say, if I've got to go work, clearing, cleaning toilets, mucking in for free, doing something else, uh, not go to the fancy restaurants anymore, you just got to suck it up. Um, but those things tend to be over pretty quick. And the brain is fantastic. It forgets some of the harsher times quite quickly. And then you'll you start recovering. Um, the thing to do is ask for help, whether it's professionally, uh, socially, uh, whatever. 
some people have been extremely good to me when I've kind of needed uh, a step up or um, a voice of reason. There's been some consistent people through that whole process that have helped out in one way or another. And most people, um, they just need some TLC often. Uh, you can go into an office, and I think you wrote something very recently on this this same topic. You can go into the office feeling great and wonder why someone's underperforming and not helping out, and you really don't know what's going on in their, their life outside work. So a little bit yeah. of compassion is very useful. So I'm very lucky that um, I would say my, my life is more good than bad at the moment. I'd love things to be a little bit different, but hey, there's only, there's only one person responsible for addressing those things. But I'm, I'm very lucky to work with uh, like-minded individuals in the organization I'm with now where a lot more of our time is uh, focused on um, social responsibility, sort of giving back modestly and privately in our own special ways. And that's where I really enjoy the mentor thing, which is something that I've been doing over some time as you, you yourself have benefited from. But I, Yeah, I think before we touch upon, upon that, like, you know, having seen you so closely for the last couple of years and watching you on your journey to recovery, I think, you know, I think I want to make a couple of comments on, on what I've observed um, that is that I sixty feedback. to be mildly, mildly nervous. <laughs> you are you are quite direct with your with your commentary. I I am aware. Of that, so, all right, okay. No, but I think well, I think first things. I think you found really good people to work with, with um, with long term vision and benefit for the company. Second of all, I think you're a very purposeful person. So. Um, I think with your with your current company, you know, with the uh, CSR stuff that you do, that makes you feel uh, really, really good. And I think what's kept you going, Malcolm, is playing to your strengths. And I've seen you exercise it. So I've seen you be not so good at asking for help, which you've just spoken about, <laughs> you know, but I've seen you help yourself by playing to your strengths. What does that mean? You've picked challenges that you think you can be extraordinary at. And one of those is turning businesses around. And I can't be more grateful to you for teaching me to do that, um, to see you going into work with good people, hiring good people. So, you know, no a whole policy. And, you know, with that pure passion of turning things around, you know, and having the same goal as your executive team, I think that's really kept you going. So I see you play on your strengths. Um, and, you know, um, so I think, I think, it's been remarkable to see you uh, through that journey. Yeah. Well, thank you for riding shotgun for large bits of it. And I hope you learned all the good lessons and don't make any of the mistakes and then you'll all be fine. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So about turning businesses around. When I think of Malcolm, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. You're just amazing business um, acumen to, to be able to do that. So tell us a little bit about how you do that. You know, the basics. I mean, this is the stuff you've always taught me. You know, all of us are working towards finding a better career um, or just being better at our existing careers. And I think, you know, being purposeful towards our, our work 
and trying to make it as profitable as we can is extremely crucial. And I think you, I don't know another person who can do it as well as you do it. Talk to us a little bit about about it, Malcolm. How do you do it? How do you go in and, you know, turn businesses around and, and work with shitty clients, but just turn it around? You know, I've seen you do it and it's it's like, you know, seeing a magician at play. So educate us. Well, uh, turnaround and transformation and stuff has always been one of my passions in, in terms of uh, I've never been hired into a company when it's been going okay. I was bought in because it wasn't working. So I've always walked into disaster is typically how it was. Um, so over, over the years of doing those things, whether it be a project, whether it be an account, whether it be a company uh, that I've run into. Oh, and you've told me if there isn't a problem, then there is no job and, and you know, you won't get paid. So if there's a problem, then you get you know, that's a good thing because you can fix it and you get paid for it. Go on. Sorry, yeah, I just it, it, kind of, right but <laughs> don't feel that if nothing's going wrong, it's a bad thing. I mean, the important thing is that uh, in business, what you're trying to do is uh, create a profitable op- um, operation. And there are certain uh, components of that. Um, and very basically in, in, in um, some things you're looking at, well, okay, what's the financial situation? Uh, what's the talent situation? What, what are we working on? What's the client's expectation? So there's it's things that they'll teach you if you go in and do an MBA course. And uh, uh, But these are things that you can learn through experience and exposure. Uh, and I'll touch on a couple of those in a moment. Uh, just so that people know is I don't have a formal uh, corporate qualification on these things. My um, skill has been learned through getting on the job and finding people, mentors within businesses, like going and sitting with the finance team, finding out how they raise invoices, finding out what they do if someone's not paying the bills, going and sitting with legal counsel, understand how they write contracts, go around the company. If you're in a corporate, go and spend time, your spare time, your lunches, go and talk with them, make friends with people in different departments, understand the mechanics of business. An MBA course, you'll spend a lot of money doing that. But if you can learn that yourself, um, even better for you. So when I go into a company, what I'm generally looking at doing, I de- whether it's a, this applies on a project, um, an account and a company basis. First thing I do is I go and look at what's the financial status. Are we getting paid? Number one. Mm-hmm. Then I'm looking at the contracts. So what did we agree to do? Across the, the client? Yeah. I mean, if, if I, I mean, it depends on the scale of the business, but typically I, I'm into sort of uh, uh, business units. But if it's a company, I will sit and read every contract for every active client, page by page. And for someone who's not a reader, that gives you an idea of how important it is to know the legality of what you're doing. Because what's, uh, what's written, um, what the intent was and what actually is being done can often be quite different things. People drift. So you can find that a client's expectation doesn't match what was originally signed up and they're giving you hell for not doing what they think you should be, but you might be doing what was contractually obliged. But the next thing to do is then speak to the people. Uh, I've gone into businesses and literally first week, I've gone and interviewed everyone at every level. Might only be for half an hour. What is really going on on the ground? And I've gone and spoken to the customers. How are things? What What do you think we do as a company? What do you think we're doing for you? What do you want? Where are you spending money elsewhere? Just doing that exercise alone will unveil, often quite scarily, unveil an awful lot of things. It's like picking up a rock and there's all sorts of disastrous bits underneath and you just want to put it down and run off to the next one. But I tell you what, that is a very, very good initial grounding. 
From there, what you're then looking at in terms of typically my businesses are much more on the technology side of things. So there will be in different types of organizations, it may or may may or may not be less applicable. But you're looking at things like tools, talent and technology. Are, Are we geared up right to be delivering all of those things? And there's an underused term in business. And I'm cautious about how I say this because I don't want people to use it flippantly, but saying no isn't used very often. And often Mm. I've seen businesses get into all sorts of chaos by somebody in a leadership position not putting their foot down and saying, we need to stop doing this. Oh, my God, tell me about it. There is nothing wrong with going and renegotiating a bad deal that you've inherited or saying stop before you wreck your business or fail to deliver for a client or whatever. It takes a lot more courage to stop than it does to carry on. You know, I have a question on that, actually, you know, sure. you know, about the about the contract bit. So I know you read it. My question is, do you get everybody else in the team to read it, too? Generally speaking, yes. Because, um, the- you know, that's not exercised enough. And I think I was very grateful to you when you taught me this earlier on in my career is that, yeah. you know, if you don't know what you're working on, if you don't know how a client is being profitable or how much resources you're burning on it. Yeah, the there's a, there's a cautionary note because again it doesn't apply to all businesses across confidentiality and bits and pieces but generally speaking is i want uh, the certainly all the team to be briefed on what they're supposed to be doing so they actually understand the context of say a client's operation uh, how they work what their kpis are and then certainly the critical people on the account will have read the contract if they don't understand it i'll have sat down with them and explained why um mm. i don't generally work for secret sneaky beaky government organizations so <laughs> so most of it is marketing and e-commerce platforms and whatever and, and you need yeah. to people need to understand what they're expected to do and yeah. they also at most levels in the business they want to know how they can contribute and if they don't know what the measurement is and what's important to everyone then they don't know really where to put their efforts and emotion into so i find being having a degree of transparency and um and teamwork and common understanding of what's actually important you get much more clarity on the direction so um so yeah get them to read the stuff also if you're looking for leaders within the business promoting from within especially where you've got gifted individuals you don't want to promote people that are not upskilling themselves so if they if you've got staff in your um, mid-management position that have never read or written a contract who can't read a set of uh, financial books or whatever they're not going to be people you can promote from within so why not get them exposed to these sort of things and encourage them because they'll be more useful to your company last thing you want to want to do is promote uh, uh, poorly educated should we say uh, individuals into a position of power that's how you get a sort of middle management backlog with people that can't do anything because they don't actually know how to do it so yeah actively encourage everyone at all levels you'll be surprised how many people are pretty good at this stuff Um, and if you're trying to find out how to um, uh, how to learn some of these things go and find a mentor in the legal department or mentor in finance or HR. Some of those um, uh, potentially less uh, uh, um, frontline jobs are just as critical. Often in a business we, uh, that I'm in, the CFO might be uh, uh, the most important person. So that's the guy who watches the money. So go and understand what their day job is. You can't run a business if you don't well, I say you can't run a business if you don't understand all those bits. You can't run a business well if you don't have a mechanical sympathy for those roles that are in there. 
Absolutely. And I think that is so underestimated. So so you turn businesses around by looking at the company finance, looking through the contracts, by doing the groundwork, speaking to people, you know, um, checking if you're geared up right, saying no and renegotiating bad deals and fixing, you know, client relationships and, and reselling. Yeah. So. Su- su- uh, surprisingly, the delivery bit is actually generally the easier part. I, gen- uh, I, I have a, a view, sell right, contract right, deliver right. If you don't do the first two, delivery never catches up. So if you're in a sort of agency or technology business or uh, manufacturing or whatever, if the wrong thing's been sold to the wrong type of customer, you're never going to fix it at delivery. That's amazing. The other thing to do is to pick customers that you want to work with. Like I said about the no assholes policy and bleep out that if you wish. Um, uh, but, but pick people that you want to work with for the next five years. Pick nice people. There's easier money out there. If you've got customers that are, um, uh, are difficult, often, again, when I've gone into businesses, um, some of the customers are not bad at all. They're just unhappy with the situation. So it's a relationship management issue. And I love that you brought this up, you know, but because we're running out of time, I think we know, like I'll definitely do a bonus episode about what you just spoke about. But in relation to cannibalism, I think, you know, we were talking about this day before yesterday. You know, it's so important to touch upon that. But in the interest of time, I want to touch upon the third pillar, Malcolm. Shall we do that? Go for it. Okay, mentorship. You have added incredible amount of value to my career. I, I, you know, ever since you told me that you've been doubling your salary every year, I was I was a bit competitive, of course, you know. Um, pretty well, I think, actually, from my recollection <laughs> of when I first met you to where you are. Um, you're yeah. probably going to accelerate <laughs> past me at this rate. Yeah, fingers crossed, you know, um, I'm, I'm all up for competition. But, you know, you've been incredibly helpful. And I think given the fact that you are uh, the oldest of our guests and, you know, most of your career is behind you, <laughs> like most of your summer. Uh, is that going to end up on the cutting room floor? Are you keeping that? <laughs> These bits are hilarious. So, I am so glad so- I know you. Yeah, <laughs> me too. So, uh, you know, I want to I want to use this last section to for you to talk to us a little bit about you know, what are some of the things that you think people can do in their careers to accelerate their careers and what they should avoid. Um and so for having the wealth of the experience that you have, mentor us. Uh, all of us audiences today, what are some of the things that we could do in our careers and what are some things that we can avoid? Well, sure. I think in terms of if I pick mentorship, uh, from my perspective is that your audience fits into two levels and it's not necessarily based on age. It's people that want to be mentored and people that can be mentors. And I think anyone that's uh, been in a business more than a few years has a responsibility to, to help the people um, uh, in the business step up. So one of the first things I try and do in a business is find my number two. Who's going to replace me so I can step up again? And that's a, that bizarrely seems quite a unique uh, angle. So from, from the more seasoned professionals that are there, get a couple of people under your wing teach them everything you know because you can't step up to the next level in the business unless you've got some capacity uh, at the level level down for individuals that are looking at being mentored it's um 
people are much more approachable. I mean, if if you want to flatter someone at my level, it's saying, you're really good. Can you teach me some of what you know? I think most people will say, yes, I'll help. And actually, it may be nothing more than just having a coffee with that person once a month or saying, you call me when you need me. The individual will often bring you challenges that they have, but it's providing in a non-formal context, it's just providing an open door so that you can actually share advice. And once they realize that you're quite human, then that's actually uh, pretty good. And you'll be surprised. These people will follow you everywhere um, because they're, they're respected, they're trusted, they're engaged, they're informed, they stay in the business. And often all they need is some TLC, someone to listen to and some encouragement. Um, the next thing to do is as an individual who wants to be mentored, you can have multiple mentors. This is not like speed dating, but over time you can find people that, like I said earlier, go and spend some time uh, in finance or in HR or in marketing or whatever, get across the business. Some companies are great at encouraging this. They have an internal uh, uh, personnel development uh, process and, and some won't, but there's no harm in you asking your own employer can I just go and sit with someone? I want to understand how we raise invoices or whatever. If there's a, a you might find HR are great at organizing that. I'll tell you the biggest thing that accelerated my career more than anything else was I had the opportunity at, at a pretty young age. I was probably, um, goodness, I'm trying to remember now. I think I was early thirties. I got the opportunity to be a non-exec director. Uh, and it was non-exec director for a very large telco in the UK. And I got introduced through coincidence. Um, it was part of the Virgin Group. Again, people can go read my LinkedIn if they want. It's still up there. Um, so I got the opportunity to do a executive leadership uh, uh, position in a very large organization. And I, it was so straightforward because it was very personal, people very nice, very straightforward. And it, it was outside my core sector of competencies. Some of my non-exec director roles were not actually in technology businesses at all. It was just sort of management development. And, and I started to learn that my skills in a business needed to touch on all aspects. I needed to know how to do HR and marketing and all sorts of other bits and pieces to be of value across an organization. Okay, I have tech, but I've got to broaden it. So being able and just going out and asking people and saying, could I learn this? But you've got to go out and hustle. You've got to go out and ask for it. Nobody's going to help you on your uh, uh, career just out of the goodness of their heart. You've got to have the passion to do it because um, it's going to be extracurricular. You don't need an MBA to be a really, really good business person. It helps if you can do that and you can afford it, but you can get there without those things as well. So yeah, simple thing is ask for it. Spend the extra time. Go and find people that are willing to help you, whether they're in your business or outside your business. And if you've already made it somewhere, check your ego, go and help some other people up the uh, up the ladder. Amazing. That's beautiful. And what, what are some of the things that you say, you know, we should be wary about? you know oh wow i mean i've got some great sound bites that i or malcolmisms as they've been referred to by some business friends some little snippets that uh uh that that i come up with these usual gems as i sort of wander in or out of a conversation in a business meeting mike drop, <laughs> mike drop something well one of my favorite ones that it, this this harks back to uh, uh to an individual we mentioned earlier but it was uh um in every deal someone's getting screwed if you don't know who it is it's you and that's I love that. something yeah. that stuck with me. Um, and then I'll probably, I'll probably just, I'll add some personal life ones. My, uh, my mum used to say to me, um, uh, enjoying the journey because the destination might be rubbish. <laughs> 
So yep, I've kind of yep. like my mum's dark humour on that. I, I like your dad's one as well. Go and give us that one too. Oh, okay. That was the one I was going to finish with. But yes, thank you. Thank you. So oh, yeah, this, okay. this one you have to listen to very carefully. And the wisest thing I think he ever said to me was, you live your life like you live your days. And that really resonates. <laughs> It really, really does. I've got lots more, but you need to come and hang out with me a bit more to pick them all up. But yeah. <laughs> and Malcolm would be really happy because he loves mentoring people. So, you know, if you're in the audience today, um, Malcolm has bags of experience and he's super enthusiastic about, uh, you know, nurturing talent. So reach out to him, hang out with him for his more Malcolmisms. Is that what it is, Malcolm? That's it, yeah. You can always ping me on LinkedIn and uh, um, if I'm around, I travel uh, pretty much constantly, but I'm happy meeting new people, talking about business, chat over coffee, whatever. So more than happy yeah. to. But mind you, you've got a big audience now. I should be careful. <laughs> 10,000 inquiries on Monday. <laughs> well, I'll let you handle the volumes. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, this has been incredible, uh, Malcolm. So are you ready for the last section of our podcast, which is the rapid fire, which, you know, with, with the women, it's been rapid with the men in the podcast. It's been rambling fire. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm kind of known for my talking, so I'll try and keep it uh, concise. Okay, fabulous. Okay, so are you ready for it? Go for it. Cool. Okay, Malcolm. Um, what is your tipple of choice? Ooh, I'm a red wine guy. If I'm at home in the UK, it's cider um, or an iced lemon tea. So there you go. There's three depending on the time of day. Yeah. And you've been incre incredibly proud of yourself recently for, you know, having gone off alcohol for four months. Yeah. Self-imposed four months thing. Best thing I did for ages. Uh, but I enjoy a glass of red wine. So I'm kind of back to it now. Okay, fantastic. So uh, what's your bedtime routine like, typically? Oh, God, I, I'm an insomniac, so I don't sleep very well at all. So, um, oh, goodness me, I think I've had eight hours sleep this, this week. <laughs> I would normally say that, actually, I, I, I listen to quite a lot of audiobooks at night. So um, so I, I would I try to go to bed pretty consistently. I work in the evenings, so uh, but if I'm in bed by 11, I'm doing okay. And then I've got an audiobook on through the night. Um, and, uh, yeah, so pre pretty basic. It, it's... Nothing too fancy, I'm afraid. <laughs> and and um, so what's your favorite morning routine? Uh, now, the mornings are much more interesting. So um, I'm not, I normally try and get up the same time every day. I'm certainly awake very, very early um, and, and sort of often through the night. But um, that's because that's my mind tends to be quite busy. But uh, first thing I'm doing in the morning is just checking that there's nothing urgent uh, coming in. I'm typically working for multinationals, so it's a 24-7 business. So just making sure that uh, I've not missed something of importance. Um, and then I'm on the news feeds as well, checking everything that's coming in. I've got a few aggregation uh, um, tools that bring stuff in, uh, normally across sort of general, uh, general news, like the BBC is kind of my go-to, and then a bunch of others for a bit of feeds. Um, breakfast breakfast that's got to be my routine i yeah, yeah. 
I always and have to gym. have a hearty breakfast. Oh, well, yeah, the gym most days, if I can do it, it's probably three to five times a week. I'm I'm often in there. If I've got morning calls to do, I'll be sat on an exercise bike or whatever while doing the call. Just you're so much in. better to go through, you know, the day when you've, when you've been to the gym. Oh, yeah, right? completely. I mean, you get the endorphins going, the blood going, whatever, and that's fine. If, you, if you're a little bit lazy in the mornings and you don't eat properly for breakfast and stuff like that, it's harder when you got... Yeah kids running around and chaos and all sorts yeah, of other things yeah. and, and commuting and nonsense like that. But if you can try and at least have a sort of consistent routine. I also like that because you're self-taught gym person as well, right? Oh yeah, I used to be a complete fitness freak. I, I, was a, I was a complete muscle head at one point when I was a lot younger. Love it, never really got out of the gym. So it's never, never needed to have a, a sort of New Year's resolution to go to the gym. I love it. I've either had a gym at home or everywhere. I love I that story. Can you give us that story in like, you know, a quick one minute about how you were like nerdy, tall, skinny, yeah, you can actually change your body type. Because <laughs> I, I was tall, skinny, braces, spotty, four eyes. I, I, I wasn't particularly attractive. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so I, I decided to go to the gym because uh, at one point I, was, uh, I think I'd come out of school and couldn't get a job. So I just spent five hours a day in the free you gym. You bought a book. Oh, yeah, I got an Arnold Schwarzenegger book on how to get fit. And it was about 500 pages with all the pictures, all the exercises. But I, I mean, I destroyed the book, basically. Um, <laughs> and uh, I was still living at home at, at, at the time. And uh, I probably was eating uh, eating my way through my rent money that I was paying to my dad. And I was, <laughs> I was in the uh, gym almost all day. It was like a full-time job for me. And I really got into it and realized that the great thing about that is that if you go and exercise, you get an immediate result return on investment is immediate you know when whenever people tell me that they struggle losing weight or they struggle getting into shape i mean you know like i've anytime you've spoken to me about this you're like yeah the return on investment is just like it's immediate you know it's yeah this didn't end up being a quick answer but yeah i like i just for me it's not for everyone i enjoy going to the gym it's just one of the things that i like doing i don't do it as much as i do at the moment and i probably am only in there really for half now with any uh, any meaningful energy um but it, it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> but i do i do enjoy that so yeah if, if that's my yeah. kind of morning routine thing god th we did get into the rambling one you're right it is the men you did yeah because <laughs> this is just expected right okay <laughs> right, okay so back to quick fire come on <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, um, your favorite comfort food. Ooh, my mum used to, well, my mum was a fantastic cook. So it's uh comfort food like that. Sunday roast. It's a very British stuff. Stod stodgy stuff. I, I can do a, a great spaghetti bolognese now. I was taught well, um, uh, bread and butter pudding, a creme brulee, something like that. So, um, I, beauty of traveling a lot is I get to eat lots and lots of different things, but uh, basic comfort food. Sun, uh, Sunday roast is lovely. Okay, fabulous. So, what is your favorite trash TV show? I don't know if you can call it trash TV. Well, you know what? Um, I've kind of given up TV, really. So from a guy who spent many years in television and broadcast, um, yeah. yeah, I'm not really into linear broadcast TV anymore. The, well, the last few years, actually, I've done a, a lot of stuff with uh, 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 YouTube in terms of self uh, sort of uh, self-taught uh, psychology. So I did last year over a thousand hours of um, psychology uh, study with people like Jordan Peterson, who I think is fantastic on psychology, sociology, and things like that. Yeah, Alain de Baton. Yes, people like that. Uh, Sadhguru, the 
introduced me to as well. So, so there's a lots of things that you can study and watch. So I tend not to be, um, I love going to the movies. I, I enjoy doing that but in terms of sort of, uh, just sitting down and watching junk these days. I, I, frankly, I don't, I don't really have the interest that I used to. It's nice to have some junk on there's bubble gum for, for the brain, but, uh, generally speaking, I'm, I'm just picking up more stuff. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, list us your cars, you know, cause I know, because I want to talk about project pink. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll come clean first. I do have a pink car. Um, I, I, <laughs> I've been into cars for a very long time. I, I living in Singapore, um, I don't actually have a car there. You, frankly, you don't need one, but I miss I, I miss having a car. So if I get to go on yeah. holiday, first thing I do is I hire a car. Someone just get the petrol head fix. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I've got uh, I've got a, a Honda. Uh, my brother worked for Honda, so I ended up buying one yeah. from him. He's a good salesman. Yeah. Um, I, I'm uh, I've got a, a Porsche, which is uh, big expensive supercar thing which just sits in a garage and get driven much but, uh, i do also have a 1968 volkswagen beetle that i bought when i was 21 and, and malcolm calls this project pink yes. and the car is regularly on fire <laughs> yeah i taught myself to do mechanics on it so welding spraying electrics rewiring it engine rebuilds uh, modifications to vehicles putting in the interiors and stuff like that and it's had one or two fires in it when i was learning to do electrics and all sorts of things to the amusement of most of my friends um and it is it is a salmon pink color um which really uh, is a pink buggy yes um, it does does cause people to question my sexuality but i'm quite comfortable with where i am so uh so and, yeah. and i think yeah i think pink is your favorite color you know uh pink shirts pink trousers pink pants pink shoes pink cars now you're you're sound biting this all down <laughs> to something so i'm a bit worried about that it's it's one of my colors for my palette should we say but yeah i just happen to have a pink car hey it stands out and it's a crazy customized customized vw beetle so it uh it kind of demands to be seen but yes nice toy they're just toys yeah yeah malcolm tell us about your favorite music oh well um <laughs> I have a very eclectic music taste, uh, but I have to admit, if I look at the number of concerts that I've been to over the last few years, you've been extremely good at dragging me out and, and getting me cultured, which I, I'm forever indebted. Well, I've, I've adopted some of it. So we've been to a few uh, piano recitals, which have been fantastic and very relaxing, frankly. Other than that, yeah. it's, it's high energy stuff in the gym. So it's uh, everything from Metallica and the Prodigy to all sorts of other weird and wonderful stuff that, uh, frankly, most people wouldn't recall. So yeah, you recently showed me some 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 really weird guys, you know, dancing in your bin. <laughs> yeah, stuff from my era that's not dated particularly well. But yeah, Spotify is fantastic. One of the great services I subscribe to. For it was wonderful to hear one of your guests from Spotify as well. Wonderful business, yeah, wonderful yeah, service. Right. Okay. So, did your family have any um, weird traditions? Um. Well. I was thinking about this actually, and I developed one, which was I used to do the uh, uh, winter barbecue. So the first sign of snow in the UK, so don't get this in Singapore, first sign of snow in the UK, I would wheel out the barbecue and I would be stood there in the first fall of snow uh, <laughs> cooking on the barbecue. I don't know why I did this. I Nobody taught me to do this. It was just something I thought, well, hey, this is weird, but it's a very English crazy thing. So 
yeah it's kind of I think also I think the, you know from what I remember from your from the stories you've shared with me is is your chicken story oh god do we have time for the chicken story goodness me I just put it in, you know, if we can't make it, I'll edit it out. <laughs> All right. Okay. So when we were, uh, when I was a, a kid, we had um, uh, a very big back garden and we were pretty self-sufficient. So mum would grow all the vegetables and um, uh, she decided that we would have chickens for eggs. Fantastic idea. We ended up, dad converted a shed at the bottom of the garden and we had a little sort of tennis court sized uh, uh, run for these chickens. And I can't remember, we had about 20 of the things. They weren't really pets, but frankly, they were better kept. But they got better food. Yeah, they got better food than me. I remember I was having cold cornflakes in the morning, carrying down warm porridge to these chickens in the bottom of the garden. And uh, these things, they loved it. They laid eggs all the time, double yolk eggs all the time. Happy chickens they were, so uh, very well looked after. I do yeah. remember coming back from school one day and uh, opening the uh, garden gate to go uh, to go around the back of the house to put my bike in and was greeted with one of the kid chickens. And I was like, you're not supposed to be here. You're supposed to be in your hutch. And then looked down the garden and then across the neighbor's gardens and in trees, and there was our chickens all <laughs> over the neighborhood. I was like, oh my. I don't know if you tried to catch a chicken, but it's not easy. And trying to catch 20 of them when they're in trees and very well fed uh that was an entertaining afternoon but uh yeah so some good oh, high points of my childhood yeah fabulous okay so um yeah i thought that was just i think i think that's just hilarious because you know you're such a techie guy and you're so businessy but on the other hand you have a pink buggy and you know pink t-shirts and you know you dance funny and you have this crazy chicken story. It's just, it's it's a whole um, Yeah, frustrated hippie. I'm going to go and take my pink beetle and live in the countryside on a self-sustaining off-grid uh, rural retreat away from all the mad technology that I spent years creating. So, uh, so yeah. It's hilarious. It's great, Malcolm. So, if at what age would you retire? Um. I've been retired from probably the first time I got into real work in tech. I, I've, I do my hobby. I mean, like I say, there are challenging oh. bits for it, but um, uh, I dread the day I retire from a point of view as I like keeping my brain uh, fresh. I'll probably die at my desk, I suspect. But uh, um, <laughs> but no, I, I would like to get to the point where I, I'm uh, being less busy. Another Malcolmism is, well, I think I stole this one actually, but uh, definition of success is someone who gets up in the morning, goes to bed at night and does whatever they want in the middle. So the closer yeah. I can get to that would be the sort of retirement point, but uh, that it's a, it's a good few years off. So no rush. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, I think that closes our section, Malcolm. I want to thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's been absolutely lovely to have you, um, it, you know, Thank you for your time. Thank you for your advice. And I can't wait to push out some of the bonus episodes for our for our audience. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us on the season finale of A Deep Tea Conversation. Today, you listen to Malcolm Wilde and his journey on entrepreneurship, mentorship and recovery. Stay tuned for more. We'll see you in our season summary of A Deep Tea Conversation. Thank you for joining us.